Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so excited to have Tara Austin Weaver, author of the new book, Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow, here on the show today. A lifelong traveler and adventurer, Tara is trained as a master gardener and permaculture designer, editor of Edible Seattle, and writer of the award-winning blog, Tea and Cookies. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tara. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Well, it's totally my pleasure to have you. Now, you write about travel, art and culture, and the environment, but most of all, you write about food. Can you share with us what draws you to writing about food? Well, it's funny. I actually fell into food writing completely by accident. I had always been a writer, but I mostly wrote travel. And then I went to graduate school and was writing some fiction and nonfiction. And it's funny because I didn't pick up on it at the time, but a lot of people in my workshop groups, I was writing a novel that was set in Japan. And people would say, when I read your chapters, I always find myself at the refrigerator afterwards looking for something to eat. Like, I love the way you write about food, but it never occurred to me. And then I got sick. This was at the end of 2005. After the holidays, I got really sick. And I was in bed for like two months, really just exhausted. We didn't know what was going on. Years later, it was discovered that I had had mono, but (laughs) the doctor never, never occurred to him. So I was just, you know, tired, but I couldn't really do anything. And I had discovered food blogs at about November of that year. I just followed a link. I, you know, blogs were pretty young then, and I had never heard of a food blog. And I thought, huh, I'm not interested in these weird blog thing, but, you know, food blog sounds interesting. And I just fell into this world. And here were these people who are so passionate about cooking and food and in the geeky way that I was. You know, they're having dinner parties and talking about their recipes and posting pictures. And I just, you know, for a couple of weeks, I just read blogs. And when I found one I liked, I'd go back to the very beginning and read through them. And no one had been blogging, you know, more than like a year then. But it was wonderful. And it was this community and they all seemed to know each other. And then it was January 1st, I just decided to start a blog. And I thought that I would just do it for a couple of weeks until I felt better and could go back to work. And I didn't even put my name on it. It was anonymous and it was just sort of my dirty little secret. I didn't tell my friends and I certainly didn't want my writing clients or editing clients to find it. But it was the most fun writing I had ever done. And I was posting every day. And it was so much fun to you know go to the market and have a reason to make these recipes and to share them. And then other people started leaving comments. And it just you know sucked me in. And it was actually about three years that I didn't have my name on it. But pretty soon, pretty quickly, like within a month or two, again, you know, the food blog world was really small back then. But within a month or two, editors started contacting me and asking me to write about food. Well, not maybe just one or two, (laughs) but that never happens. I mean, I had been a writer up until that point. So it was just kind of amazing. And they responded to the voice on the blog. And I said in my bio that I was a professional writer. So they sort of assumed that I would be able to do these jobs. But yeah, it just took off. After three months, a friend of mine who is an agent read a post and she said, you should write a book about this. And so that turned into a book contract, kind of, I mean, it really just happened very organically. 
Wow, I mean, that's totally the thing, though. I mean, with blogs, people really get to learn about yourself and you and hear your voice. And, you know, it's an amazing sort of medium for a portfolio, even if you don't intend it to be that. Well, it is an amazing vehicle for voice and a very personal type of writing, which can be really wonderful and also sometimes really, really awkward. But what I think is really great, and I loved seeing this in the early blog years because, you know, I'm an editor by trade and I would find these sites. And again, if it was someone that I really loved, I would go back and read them from the very beginning. And you can just see their writing skills improve. And, you know, the early posts are always really self-conscious and awkward, but, you know, people would hit their stride. And as an editor, it was incredibly gratifying to watch the developmental arc of a writer so fast. But again, you know, practice is where it's at. And I feel like, you know, I've done a lot of different type of writing and journalistic writing, which, you know, your personal voice is very much hidden in that case. But I feel like, you know, the blog gave me a place to practice that voice and develop it and a reason to keep going. The reason I'm still writing the blog is purely for the readers. I mean, I am busy in other places and sometimes too busy to have a blog, but the connections that you develop with the readers are amazing. And I have people who have been commenting on my stuff for years now, and I hear bits of their life in their comments as well. And it's a wonderful thing. It's an awesome tool for connection, for sure. It really is. And I think, you know, it's funny, people were concerned that computers and the internet would isolate us. But I think it brings people together who have, you know, a shared sensibility in a beautiful way. Right, for sure. Now, were you always interested with cooking? You know, I think that I was. I have a mother who's a horrible cook. She will tell you this. The joke in my family is that my brother and I learned how to cook in self-defense. My mom was a single parent when I was growing up and still. And we had a couple of babysitters who lived with us because my mom really, you know, was off at work. And so, you know, our babysitters, there was a little cottage on our property and they would live there and, you know, drive the carpool and do the cooking and cleaning. And some of them were horrible. <laughs> but we had one in particular who really liked to cook. And she would take the plums that fell off of our tree and make jam and make, you know, pickles. She made kimchi, which was like, you know, sort of hippie 19, you know, 70s, 80s, Northern California, white person kimchi. But it it was really good and she made like a, we call it baby kimchi a version for us without the spices but we really liked it because it was salty and I think that that was the spark seeing someone enjoy themselves in the kitchen and then I just you know she was with us for a while and then she moved away and at that point we were sort of growing out of needing babysitters and I was about 13 I think when I started taking over all the cooking for my family because I enjoyed it and my mom hated it and she wasn't good at it and so I would give her a shopping list and she would go and do the shopping and bring back the ingredients I wanted and Molly Katzen actually who wrote the Moosewood cookbook I feel like she was my cooking teacher because I would just you know make all the recipes and my copy of her book like the bindings cracked and I have this handwriting in the margins with like little kid bubble letters you know good recipe <laughs> Right. Do you still have that book with you? Oh, I do. I do. And you know what? It's so sad. When I was on book tour for my first book, she came to my event. I had sent her a copy of the book because I mentioned her in it. And she had emailed me to say how much she enjoyed it. And she came to my event 
And I didn't have my copy of the book to show her. I really, really wanted to. But we always try to get together when I'm in California. And it hasn't quite happened because my visits are short and sweet. But someday I would love to. I mean, I'm sure so many people have shown her their beat up copies. But I think that that just must be amazing. An amazing thing. I'm not a cookbook author. But to go into people's kitchens and lives and have that sort of effect. Well, I mean, you kind of are a cookbook author because the blog is really, you know, there are a lot of recipes there. So now with, you know, our iPads and stuff, you know, we just have our iPad on the kitchen table and we will scroll through recipes and we'll look up the recipes. You know, it's funny because I came to this as a writer and not as a recipe developer or chef or anything like that. So I'm always surprised when people make the recipes. And in the beginning, I was actually terrified. (laughs) Like it worked for me. I hope it works for you. But people do say, you know, sometimes they'll leave a comment and say, oh, I make this all the time. Every time I get sick, I make this. And it is, you know, it's like part of my family and my kitchen goes into, you know, their kitchen and their family. And it's a lovely thing. Yeah, for sure. It totally is. Now, as a child, you had a vegetarian diet. This changed, though. Can you share with us why? So my mother's a vegetarian, and I think it's actually probably a misnomer to call me a vegetarian. Um, I always say I was raised vegetarian and we were vegetarian at home, but my mother always said, you have to make your own decisions. You know, so if my soccer team went out for pizza, you know, and there was pepperoni, I ate it. I always knew that my mother was slightly disappointed (laughs) at us eating meat. But I think that most vegetarians go through a emotional process, you know, sometimes even spiritual process deciding to become a vegetarian. And it's an entirely different paradigm when you were raised into that and grew up with it. And it's a small, like the tiniest portion of people of my generation who come from that background. I have a friend of mine, actually, well-known food blogger, Molly Weitzenberg. Her husband grew up vegetarian. And actually, when I met him, he had not eaten meat. He suspected that he had had fish sauce and chicken stock that he wasn't aware of. But he had never eaten a piece of meat. So I always call those people gold star vegetarians who have like flesh has not crossed their lips. But yeah, we were sort of in the gray area. And then I got sick at one point and all of the doctors, medical doctors, Chinese herbalists, everyone told me that I should be eating meat. So that's really what led to the first book because that was just like exploring a foreign country. And now it's still you know, it's much easier for me to cook vegetables. It's just what I know and what I grew up with. And I definitely, I'm still learning about meat and things that other people take really for granted, like knowing the cuts of meat or something like that. I have to ask questions and pretend that I'm, you know, I'm like, tell it to me like I'm stupid, just from lack of exposure. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I mean, I've grown up eating meat, but I still have no idea about certain cuts. And I mean, I think for anybody, you know, learning about these things, unless you're a butcher, then, you know, you wouldn't really know specific cuts and maybe what the best way it is to cook it. Well, and I think that's something that has happened really to our generation with kind of the loss of food education and cooking education. Because, you know, 50 years ago, you were buying your meat in a butcher shop and you probably knew all of those cuts. And, you know, restaurants weren't as common a thing as they are today in eating out. So we've definitely lost a lot of knowledge. And it's coming back because, you know, butchers are so hot now and people are more and more concerned with sourcing their meat sustainably. So it's an interesting time. Yeah, and I think people are also wanting to find out how, you know, they're looking online for this information as well, if not, you know, asking a local butcher or the local supermarket. Yeah, you can search all sorts of embarrassing things on the internet, nobody knowing. (laughs) What is London broil? (laughs) Right. Now, you have a close connection with Japanese food. 
How did this all come about? So this is another thing I was actually born into. My mother lived in Japan in the 60s when she was in her 20s. And we went to Japan for the first time when I was six years old. And my brother was four. But even our house was, she was very influenced by her time there. And so I grew up with a lot of Japanese culture. And she's not a good cook, but she actually makes a really fantastic miso soup. And that's what I would eat when I was sick. And, you know, every morning she makes her green tea, the ceremonial green tea with a whisk. And we have tatami mats in our house and scrolls of Japanese calligraphy. And if you didn't know better, you might think that we were not totally European descended Caucasians, Americans. It was funny when I lived in Japan later after college and when I would meet people there and they would hear about my childhood and they would say, is one of your parents Japanese? And I would look at them with my, you know, blonde hair and my blue eyes and I'd go, no, but yeah, we have a lot of Japanese culture in our life. Right. Now, you've authored a new book called Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow. Can you tell me more about the book? So the book is set in Seattle, and it is the story of a somewhat broken family, which would be mine. And we discovered about five years ago, I discovered, I was looking for property for my mom who wanted to move to Seattle because my brother and I both live here. And in the process, I discovered this sort of not terribly exciting house that happened to be on half an acre of land within the city limits, which is really, really unusual. And I put it on the list of properties to look at just because I was curious. I mean, that much land, there was a cottage, a greenhouse, and we were going to be in that neighborhood looking at some other properties. And I said, well, if we have extra time, let's go see it. And we did, and we went, and we all just fell in love with this yard. It was completely overgrown. It had been neglected for about 10 years. Blackberry vines everywhere, and it just felt like the secret garden. And my sister-in-law and my nieces were with us that day, and, you know, the girls are running wild in the sunshine and coming back with berry juice all over their face and their arms full of Asian pears. And it just was this magical moment. And my mother decided to buy the house and move to Seattle. And all of us were going to work together to bring the garden back to life. And of course, the garden sort of ends up bringing us back to life, bringing us together. So yeah, it's about growing food, but also a lot about family and community and Seattle, which I find to be a really unique community. And discovering unexpected things in overgrown, deserted locations. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe the thing. Like, there was no expectation that it would have such a huge impact and blossom into something that is now Orchard House, the book. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go into it thinking I would ever write about it. A friend of mine, when she heard me talking and heard how excited I was about the garden, she was the one who said, you know, you really need to write about this. But yeah, it really has been a pretty unexpected journey, but a really wonderful one. And it's fun. The The book launch party was last night and my whole family was there and the kids were there and they got to sign some of the books and their, you know, loopy little kid handwriting. So it's been lovely. Cool. That sounds really exciting. And do you expect that the garden will have... I mean, I think I read somewhere that for your dinners, for your Thanksgiving dinners or something, it was like 90% like produced from one of the gardens. Yeah, so... In the summer, I figure, and this was not something we set out to, you know, be some sort of urban farmer survivalists, but in the summer, I pretty much eat 70% out of the garden. 
I mean, I still buy like noodles and, you know, beans and things like that, but we produce a lot of food. And my mom leaves in the summer. She has a cabin on an island in British Columbia, near you actually. So she's gone all summer and it is a lot of food for one person. So anyone who comes visits usually gets sent home with, you know, kale and we have chickens now and there are a lot of eggs and in the fall that so many pears and apples, it's actually a little overwhelming. But the Thanksgiving thing was, I think it was two, maybe three years into the garden project, I decided to try to grow our entire Thanksgiving dinner. And again, my family's vegetarian, so I didn't need to worry about turkey. We don't usually have that. I eat meat. My brother eats meat. But he married into a vegetarian family as well. So we're very outnumbered. But the entire menu had to be decided in March because I had to plant the plants. And we had a couple of crop failures for a while there. It looked like maybe we weren't going to have pumpkin pie because (laughs) some of the pumpkins died along the way and it was a bit of a roller coaster but it's so amazing and I remember this the very first time this happened I think my first summer in Seattle I had a tiny tiny little garden at the place that I was living then and I realized that I had grown enough food for an actual meal and it is amazing to sit down and look at your plate and think I grew all of this it really is just a sense of pride that is very hard to explain. And also, I feel like it ties us back to culture and history and traditions. I mean, this is how people used to feed themselves. They would grow their food. So it feels like a link to the past and also a tremendous sense of confidence and self-security. One of the themes in the book is actually permaculture, which is a really fascinating approach to gardening and also planning life and sustainable human developments. But, you know, we're at a time of climate change and great uncertainty. And sometimes, and maybe this sounds dire, but sometimes I know my mom does this and I do this sometimes, I think well, you know, we could grow a lot of food here if we needed to. And, you know, that's how people used to do it. Right. Now, Tara, you're trained as a master gardener. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what the process was like and what it means? I can. I did the master gardener training here in Seattle last year, and it's about a three-month training. Most of the people who volunteer are very knowledgeable about gardening already. And really what it does is it trains you to work with the community and to pass along information. And the thing that is unique about the Master Gardener program is that it's all scientific, academically responsible information. It all sort of comes from research. And the program is affiliated in Washington, at least, with the Washington State University, which is a land-grant university here. So a lot of times we're getting, you know, cutting edge research and updates and tremendous knowledge. And some of the people who have been in the program for decades and they're such experienced, knowledgeable gardeners. But it's really a volunteer commitment to spend time doing outreach into the community. And I work at a clinic that people bring in. Actually, my clinic is known for the really, really hard questions because we're right at the sort of the urban horticulture center. So people come in and bring like a diseased leaf off of their plant for you to diagnose it, or they want to grow tomatoes, or their lawn is dying. So it's a tremendous education in itself because sometimes you know the answers and sometimes you say, okay, I don't know the answers, but here are all the resources and I'm going to show you how to find them. So it's great. And just being around other gardeners is an education in itself. So really enjoying it. Cool. Now, growing up, we had a cherry tree and my parents always tried to grow vegetables in our backyard. Today, they have a fig tree, grow zucchini, kale, and other goodies. Unfortunately, 
I do not have their green thumb. Now, for someone who's never grown anything or is intimidated by growing their own food, what are some ideas or tips for getting over that hurdle and to try? Well, I recommend that particularly anyone who is interested in cooking, I recommend starting with herbs because they are not that hard, A, and tremendously rewarding. And it will save you so much money because you don't have to buy an entire bunch of rosemary to get one sprig. And I don't know about you, but I always have these bunches of herbs that are you know, getting slimy in my fridge because I didn't use all of the cilantro. But there are rosemary, thyme, oregano. These are some very chives as well, very hardy plants. And if you're putting them in the ground, especially, I think a lot of people try with houseplants or to grow herbs in their kitchen and get discouraged because they die. And the problem with putting something in a pot is that it's going to dry out pretty quickly. And most people put things in pots that are too small. So the plant looks great at the nursery. It's in a pot. But when you get it home, you actually need to take it out of that pot and put it in a pot that is generally twice as big because those roots need somewhere to go. So I grow herbs in my kitchen in the winter because I actually, this huge garden is at my mother's house. I don't live there. So I need some herbs for my kitchen. And I generally expect that they are going to die at some point in the winter. Just, you know, sometimes they make it through all the way and I put them in the ground in the spring. But oftentimes, especially if I go travel anywhere, they die. And I've just accepted that that is part of the process. So I think that's another thing is that sometimes plants, when taken out of their native environment, will die. And, you know, one of the gardeners in my clinic, the master gardener, say, you know, you just have to accept that this is part of the cycle of life and gardening means sometimes death. But the joy of just walking out the door and snipping a little sprig of herbs for whatever you're cooking is that's what my first summer in Seattle, I had mostly herbs. And I just remember walking out one day and doing that and thinking to myself, happiness is an herb garden. And the thing is that, I mean, you just mentioned that herbs are pretty hardy plants to grow outside. So, I mean, even a beginner can sort of just, you know, find some seeds and or go to the nursery and pick up a small plant and just plant them wherever they can find some space, right? Well, I think the other thing, and this is a mistake that people frequently make. So the saying that they have in the master gardener world is right plant, right place. So you really do want to pay attention to whether it needs sun, whether it needs shade, and how much water. Because a lot of people try to grow what they want to grow. And I do this too. I don't have, well, the place gets a little bit of sun. Can I just stick it in there? And you're kind of setting yourself up for varying levels of heartbreak. So if you pay attention to that, I think that you're halfway there. Well, that kind of leads to my next question. Now, I remember that when we were children and we had this cherry tree, the birds would get to the fruit way before we could. Now, I remember reading somewhere that if you grow certain plants beside each other, they act as sort of natural like rodent or pest repellents. Now, is that true or is that just something I read? (laughs) No, they can. People will grow marigolds by their tomatoes. The thing is, Cherry trees and birds are a really hard match to break up. And if it's a large tree, you know, a lot of like our cherries are all quite small because we planted them ourselves. So they're about five years old now and they're dwarf trees. So they really won't get very big. And I have to drape them in black netting every summer to keep the birds away. And the thing that kills me is because I always have my eye on both the blueberries and the cherries. And as they get ripe, I'm always thinking I have to get netting on that. And then, like, the day before I plan on doing it, the birds will hit it first, and you're just out of luck. So, 
you know, it's like cats and catnip and particularly really, really big established trees, like in people's backyard, you just have to assume that you're sharing the crop there because it would be really challenging. They are very good at sensing when the sugar levels are at peak and they will swoop in and get it before you. Right. Now, are there some good books or online resources for people who want to learn more and get started on a garden of their very own? You know, I love Gayla Trail, who is a Canadian garden writer, and she has a site that she's been keeping for probably a decade now called You Grow Girl. And I think she has a fantastic approach, a series of books, I think at least three. And one of them is, you know, small space, container gardens. I think one is herbs. I'm a real fan of her work. Margaret Roach is out of New York or Massachusetts, and she was the garden editor for Martha Stewart for years. Her site is A Way to Garden. And the third person I would point you towards is Willie Galloway, who's out of Portland. She used to live here in Seattle. And she has a great book, particularly if you are a food person. It's called Grow, Cook, Eat. And she talks about growing food, but also has recipes. So you can kind of trace the whole cycle. So if you're someone who likes to cook and likes to eat, that is just, and the pictures, the photographs are beautiful. It's a really inspiring book. Awesome. No, I'll definitely have to check those out because I haven't started, but I definitely have the intention to start this year. Well, yeah, those are three people who will not steer you wrong. And there is an entire garden blog community that I'm just starting to explore. The other book that I think is really great, and I've had a copy since I was in high school, but it's sort of you know encyclopedic, but a good resource is Barbara Damrosh who is a very famous garden writer and has been, again, I bought her book when I was in high school. So, and I think it's a garden primer, but that is a resource that I'm always going back to. Perfect. Now, here at the Dinner Special, we talk with food heroes about dinner dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and maybe the story behind the dish? Sure. Well, I'll tell you this story because I just made this yesterday for my book launch party and everyone loved it. This Recipe comes from my friend Knox, who is a character in the book, a good friend of mine here in Seattle, who is an avid gardener, and he grows sorrel. And I grew sorrel years ago because Martha Stewart told me to, but I didn't really know what, you know, she has a recipe for sorrel soup in one of her early books, but I didn't really know what anything else to use sorrel for. And sorrel is a very lemony, looks like spinach a little bit, but it has a very lemony flavor. And Knox one day said something about the tart. And I went, what do you mean the tart? And he's like, well, why do you grow sorrel if not for the tart? So this recipe is a sorrel tart. It's a Deborah Madison recipe. And it is so good. You know, so it's sort of like a quiche, has a crust, sorrel, caramelized red onions, Gruyere cheese, and anyone who eats it kind of just dies a little bit of happiness. So it's on my site. And then I would say that my other recipes, I am a huge fan of soba noodle salads, soba in any preparation, and I've got like probably 10 soba recipes on the site. I just throw whatever is growing in the garden into soba noodles and it's good. Perfect. Now, let's say you were to invite three famous people over for the sorrel tart. Who would they be? You know what? I want to have dinner with Obamas. I think that that would just be so interesting, particularly at this time in history. So I would invite them. And I don't know, I guess I would add Chief Justice Soda Meyer because I just think, you know, they know each other. And yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm headed to DC tomorrow. So I'm in a political mindset. But you could take that question in so many different directions. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, let's say you were to have the Obamas and Chief Justice Meyer over for dinner, and there was a movie playing in the background. What would that movie be? Well, you know, I think that The Big Night is a fantastic movie to have playing in the background of any dinner party. The food in that is just so wonderful, and the characters are great, and I kind of would love any dinner party I host to have that sort of passion behind it. So I'm going to go with that. Perfect. Now, I call the next part of the dinner special podcast the pressure cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? Okay, bring it on. Awesome. Now, number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? You know what? I don't watch any of them. I'm watching a lot of garden shows these days. Alice Fowler's series out of the BBC is really fantastic, and it's all about edible gardening. So that's kind of cooking and garden related. Yeah, Alice Fowler, that is? Yeah, A-L-Y-S is the first name. Okay, perfect. Number two, what are some food blogs or websites we have to know about? Oh, so many. I have a lot of friends who have been blogging since my early days, and I'm sure you know all of them. So I'm going to tell you about a more recent blog, The Yellow House, Sarah Searle's site. She lives outside of D.C. in the Virginia countryside, and it's beautiful, beautiful writing, really lovely recipes and gorgeous photography. But I really am a huge fan of her work. Perfect. Number three, who do you follow on social media that make you happy? That, again, so many, many of them. I'm going to call out a rising star here in Seattle, Bethany Wright, and her Instagram feed is Wright Kitchen, and it's W-R-I-G-H-T. She is an up-and-coming food photographer and does these amazing color gradients with food. Just go look at her feed. It's really inspiring. I will. Now, number four, what is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? I have a lot of teapots that people have given me as gifts that I really treasure. I actually love everything in my kitchen that has been a present because every time I use it, I think of that person. And I feel like I have my people with me when I'm cooking. So even a set of measuring spoons that were a gift from friends, it really is, I feel like I have my people around me. Perfect. Now, number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike, but now you love. Eggplant. When I was a kid, I used to lie to people and tell them that I was allergic to eggplant because I could not take it. It was often prepared in bad stir fries where it gets bitter and soggy. I grew up in the counterculture and hippies do not know how to make good stir fries. They needed some Asian cooking classes back then. But I went to Greece when I was 20 and a student living in Europe and I ate eggplant prepared well for the first time ever and now it's one of my favorite things. An eggplant that is prepared in the Indian style. India does great things with eggplants. The Mediterranean Asian cuisine does good things with eggplants. And Italians, the hippies I grew up with, did not do good things with eggplants. No, but now you've discovered the beauty of the eggplant. It can be a great thing. And I've actually, for other eggplant haters, I've converted some friends who thought that they hated eggplant too. So there's hope. Awesome. Now, number six, what are a few cookbooks that make your life better? So I'm editor of a food magazine now, Edible Seattle. And I get all of the new cookbooks that come out. So I am drowning in cookbooks a little bit these days. But I have to say that Heidi Swanson, who is a very well-known food writer out of San Francisco, her site is 101 Cookbooks. I love her work because she really looks at ingredients with a fresh eye. 
And particularly, she does a lot of traveling. She has a new book coming out that is inspired by her travels. And I feel like she takes ingredients from different cultures and uses them in really fresh, inventive ways. And I mean, the other culture I know the best is Japan. And sometimes she'll do things and I go, oh, I never thought that you could do that with it. So I love people that make me think differently. Perfect. And finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? You know what? I listen to podcasts when I cook. I don't actually listen to music. That is really funny. Well, I will tell you that yesterday I cooked all the food for my book launch party, which is a bit of a crazy thing. And I also actually grew all the food. It was all from the garden. So yesterday my kitchen looked like a caterer set up. And I was running around frantically, and I actually put on a whole bunch of Taylor Swift and played it really, really loud to get me through the experience. So whatever works. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And she's fun. It's poppy. It's lively. Why not? Yes, I was shaking it off yesterday. (laughs) Congratulations, Tara. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. Thank you. (laughs) Now, Tara, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. What's the best way for us to keep posted with what you're up to? Well, my blog is teaandcookiesblog.com and I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I think everyone tells you this these days. Instagram is my favorite, favorite thing. So I'm T, T E-A underscore Austin with an E-N. And yeah, the photos. And I'm going to be posting photos throughout my book tour. And so that'll be fun too. Awesome. And don't forget to check out Tara's book, Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Book Larder, Powell's, and IndieBound. And of course, you can go to Tara's website, tncookiesblog.com for more information. Thank you so much, Tara, for taking the time. I know you're super busy. You catered your own party. You had a book launch. Now you're off to do your book tour. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it was an utter delight. Thank you so much for the podcast. I've really been enjoying it. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening. My pleasure. So you're in the kitchen with me when I'm cooking. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking.